in a series called The Pursuit of Happiness. The Pursuit of Happiness. And last week, we dialogued on how this, this uh, scriptural mandate for us is to, to continuously be joyful. And we started joking about, you know, oh, well, happiness and joy, you know, that, you know, we try to break that down and say, well, you know, we can't always be happy, but, you know, joy is something deeper. But the scriptures doesn't give us permission to do that. It says you got to have an attitude that's consistently happy, consistently joyful. But let's face it, how many of us are batting 10 out of 10 on that? That's a hard one. So last week, we unpacked one of the keys, and if you missed that, you can catch it online, but one of the keys to uh, establishing a lifestyle of happiness and joy was gratitude. And this week, we're going to unpack one of the other pieces, and it's a piece called contentment. Now, I don't know about you, but contentment is not a very exciting word. It doesn't get me geeked out. I'm like, contentment sounds level. It sounds neutral. It doesn't sound very uh, up. So what does contentment mean? The definition of content is just this. It's a state of peaceful happiness. How many of you would like to be in a state of peaceful happiness? Where I'm from, we call that California. (laughs) You don't have tomatoes. I made sure. (laughs) A state of peaceful happiness. Oh, man, that sounds so amazing, but how do we get there? And here's the problem. Our culture today is marked by an inexhaustible discontent. We're always discontent. We're never satisfied. We never have enough. We never feel like, oh, this is good enough. This has got me where I want to be. I'm finally content. We just never get there. What's funny is I started thinking about what are the things in my life where I've not been content? And the list was too long. I couldn't pick a great one. I went from technology and phone upgrades to finances to jobs and every area of my life, there's always been an inexhaustible discontent. I don't know about you, I was thinking about when I was growing up, my dad, he used to love to buy old cars. Not like classic worthwhile old cars, just old cars. He would say, oh, this is a car I wish I had in high school and it wasn't like an amazing car. It wasn't like an El Camino, it was a Ranchero, right? It was like the, this is the one I wanted. And he would buy it and he would drive it over to our house and he'd park in front of the house and it would just look like junk in front of the house. And he'd look out there and for a little while he'd be happy. I always wanted that, now I got it. And pretty soon he'd go out there and say, you know what's wrong with this car? It needs tinted windows. And he'd tint the windows. And my mom and I would look at each other like, here we go. Because a month later, it'd be, you know what's wrong with this car? The, in, the inside, it's not nice enough. We've got to reupholster it. Then he'd reupholster it. You know what's wrong with this car? It needs paint. Pretty soon it'd have a custom paint job. It's starting to look nice now, even though it's a ranchero. <laughs> and inevitably, this is how you knew the clock was ticking. He'd say, you know what it needs? Tires and rims. Remember, I'm from California. <laughs> tires and rims. And the moment he'd say tires and rims, my mom would look at I, and we'd look at each other like, because that's the end of the car. As soon as it has tires and rims, that car was going for sale. Why? Because there was nothing more for him to do to it. And so now he needed the next car and in come a new jalopy. This is the car I always wanted. And it'd sit in front of the car, in front of the house, and it looked like junk for a couple months. And the pattern would start over and it would cycle through and it would cycle through and it would cycle through. And it was like a running joke in our family, you know, up tires and rims. That means the car is for sale. But that's how our culture is. We just naturally always want the next thing. And we get the next thing, and guess what? It's not good enough. You know what drives me crazy? There's a better iPhone out there than the iPhone I have right now. I think I got mine in May. How can there be a newer, cooler one? When I got mine in May, I still, I have my old iPhone. I put it next to my new iPhone. I can't tell the difference yet. I'm not sure what my new phone does that my old phone didn't do, but I got the new one. Fish on, (laughs) right? I got it. Why? Because we live in a culture of inexhaustible discontent. We are pre-programmed to want the latest, the greatest, the best, or at very least to want more. Give me more. Give me more. You think about it when it comes to our financial worlds, one of the most obvious ways to do it. How do we know if we're doing well enough? What are the numbers? You know, Gallup did a poll, I was back in like 2012, 
and they surveyed people in different economic brackets and they said, how much would it take for you to be rich from where you're at right now? And they talked to people whose economic world was about $30,000 of family income and they said $60,000 would be rich, just more. And they talked to people who were in a bracket of around $60,000. How much would it take to be rich, to be comfortable, to have enough? They said $120,000. If we had $120,000, we'd have enough, we'd be okay. Come on, you know how this goes. They talked to the $120,000 crew and they said, and you said, how much would it take? And they said, $500,000. It jumped. They talked to the $500,000 crew and they said, a million dollars. When they talked to the million dollar crew, they said, $5 million. Talk to the $5 million crew. I don't know what they said. They probably just said a little bit more. It used to be a million dollars in the bank. People said, I'm rich. In 2017, Newsweek, Newsweek did a survey, and they said that considered wealthy in America, by American standards now, $2.3 million in the bank to be considered wealthy in America right now. Meanwhile, the global household income average is $9,733 a year. See, we live in a culture of inexhaustible discontent. Just more. We got to have more. We got to have more stuff. And when we have more stuff than we can hold, we need a bigger place to hold our more stuff. And when we get the biggest possible place to hold our more stuff and we still have too much stuff, then we need temporary rented places to hold our stuff. There's entire TV shows. I'll get hooked some afternoons just watching useless TV shows about people raiding the storage lockers of people who died with not telling anyone where their stuff was. So much stuff. And we just need more and more and more. One of the wealthiest men who ever lived was Solomon. And he said this about wealth, Proverbs 18:11. He said, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. You want to feel secure? Just need a little bit more. And how much will it take until you feel like your life is behind an unscalable wall? No recession, no politician, no uh, family emergency, no crazy health thing could possibly scale that wall. You have enough that any circumstance possible you think you're prepared for. What's enough? We live in a culture defined by inexhaustible discontent. We just want a little bit more. We live in a culture that teaches us to think about, well, what if? What if you lose your job? What if something goes up? What if rates go up or down? What about inflation? On and on and on and on and on. And this principle isn't just held to financial material things. We do the same thing in our relationships. We do the same thing in other areas of our life, just saying, I just need a little bit more. We do the same thing in our spiritual lives. Am I there yet, God? Do I have enough? Am I okay? Have I, have I crossed the threshold? Do I have fire slash hell insurance for my life? Are we good? Am I up to date on my premium? And we process our lives that way. This consistent conflict of wanting more and more and more. And so we look to the scripture and say, how do we manage this tension that's in us? You know what's funny is I almost preached this morning from Genesis chapter three. I really wrestled with just this picture of Adam and Eve in the garden having absolutely everything given to them, gifted to them. They're not getting old. They're not dying. Their situation is awesome. And suddenly the serpent enters the picture and just leaks the idea that there's something out there that they don't have. And they give up everything to chase it. That same tension is in the human race today. Some of you got everything and more. If another person looked at your life, they would dream for the life that you have. They would dream for it. And we trade it all in a second for that next thing that we think we need. It's the story of Adam and Eve. But I ain't gonna preach that today because I just preached it right there. That was a free one. I wanna talk today, if you have your Bibles open to Philippians chapter four, and we're gonna, we're gonna dive into this tension of Paul sitting in prison, 
processing how in the world he writes a whole book about being joyful from prison. When external circumstances don't match my ideal of what should or shouldn't be, how do I experience happiness, joy, and contentment in all of those situations? And if you get to the book of Philippians, it's amazing. We'll break it down in just a moment. But I want you to catch at the very end of the book, the last few verses of chapter four, beginning at verse 10, it's kind of like the, uh, the thank you letter that he writes to the Philippian people. They've sent him a kind gift and he writes a thank you letter. So I set up a little thank you letter writing station right here. I'm gonna read the text to you from here. Now, I remember he's in jail, so it's not quite as comfortable as I am right here, but uh, he's likely in house arrest at this point. And so someone else bringing him resource and gift is critical because he can't earn anymore. He's not building tents and making money. He's on house arrest. Uh, most likely he's in a Roman uh, prison situation at this point. Uh, we don't know that for sure. Historically, he doesn't say. There's three possible places where he is in jail when he writes this letter, but most likely he's in Rome. And he receives a care package, a gift package from the Philippians. And so he's writing a thank you letter. So I want you to hear this as a thank you letter and then we'll break it down. I'm in Philippians chapter four, verse 10. You'll notice his amazing thank you letter skills as we write this. Verse 10. <clears throat> I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need for I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not, what I'm looking for, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied. Now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, they're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice and pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you and with your spirit. Amen. Paul writes this incredible letter, the book of Philippians. We read it as a book with chapters and verses. He wrote it as a letter to a group of people that he cared deeply about. You know, the Philippian church has a beautiful history. If you read Acts chapter 16, it gives you kind of the historical uh, background of this Philippian church. And essentially the short version of what happens is Paul's gone off on this missionary journey and he's beginning to share the gospel with people who have different ethnic backgrounds than Jews. He's meeting Greeks and other Gentile people and he's sharing the gospel with them and he's having powerful uh, transformational uh, relational moments with people telling them about Jesus. And he's doing this, tr this tour of uh, kind of the, uh, the eastern side of the Mediterranean and, and he falls asleep and he has a dream. And this man from Macedonia shows up in his, in his dream. It's a person who's Greek and says, come to us. And Paul wakes up and he's like, I have to go to this other people group, these Greeks. And he travels then into Macedonia and it's the first European church that ever gets started is in Philippi. He goes to Philippi and Philippi is this incredibly significant uh, city at this time. Uh, there was a gold mine there, literal gold mining was happening there. And since that was part of the wealth of the Roman empire, the money was coming out of Philippi. Philippi is important uh, historically. It's where um, the people who killed Julius Caesar fled to because there, uh, there was wealth there. So, uh, so Brutus and all those guys fled there after they killed Ju uh, Julius Caesar. And then Octavius and Mark Anthony chased them down, killed them in Philippi, right? You know these 
stories kind of from throughout history. Um, Octavius becomes uh, uh, Caesar Augustus, who's very significant in the Christmas story and the origin of Jesus. So it kind of puts you historical context, the city of Philippi. It becomes a outpost in Rome that is incredibly uh, important. It's eclectic. There's people from all backgrounds and faiths there. They basically worship Rome there. They, they worship the Caesar. They worship, uh, Caesar is treated like God, and then they have some Greek goddess worship background stuff kind of going on there. But there's an eclectic culture there. And one of the cool things about Philippi, just historically, is because it was so significant, Rome always kept it fortified. But also, it was one of the few places that if you weren't from Rome, uh, if you weren't a naturalized Roman citizen, you could own land there uh, because they wanted to keep it a uh, marketplace and to keep it alive and having new things happening there. Philippi was this incredibly insignificant city. So because of that, Paul goes to this place when he has a dream about Macedonia and he shows up and he's walking the streets of Philippi and he's making connections and, and beginning to build relationships with some people, but no one's kind of receiving the message. So Saturday rolls around and it's Sabbath and he thinks, okay, I'm going to go find some Jews in this community to worship with, but he can't find any. There's not enough. There's not a temple there uh, for, for uh, the Jewish religion. It's not big enough. There's, it's an eclectic city, but there's not enough Jews there. So he starts wandering around looking for a place where there might be enough Jews because they would get together and gather. So he goes down by the water and he thinks this is kind of a spot where he might find some Jewish people worshiping. And he finds a family. And the person that he finds is a woman named Lydia. What's incredible is the first European church the head of that, the person who or originated that was this woman that Paul built relation with named Lydia. So he goes down, he meets Lydia. She is a non-Jewish Jew. She's a Jewish convert, but she's observing the Sabbath and she's worshiping. And Paul meets with her and has this interaction with her, shares about Jesus. Boom, she gives her heart to the Lord. Her whole family gets saved and she takes Paul in and the church in Philippi starts in Lydia's house. As it begins to grow in influence, apparently Lydia's family was of some means and some significance because they had resource. The church begins to grow. These other house churches start popping up. The people in Philippi are like, this is getting too exciting, too popular. Um, they arrest Paul. They throw him in jail. He's in jail. This is the story where the earthquake happens and he gets freed from jail. The angel shows up, lets him out, but he doesn't leave. Instead, he preaches at the guard and the guard gets saved. Now the family of the guard gets saved. Now Lydia's family gets saved. He shows up back outside their, Lydia's house and knocks on the door. They think he's gonna be dead. They're scared he might be a ghost. They don't know what's happening. The church is just exploding. People are having jail breaks. People are getting saved. It's exciting. So they decide they're gonna throw rocks at him and try to kill him and get him out of town. So finally he leaves. But the spark of faith is ignited in Philippi. He goes from there to Thrace, um, uh, when eventually down where like the, the book of Thessalonians is written, and uh, he references that the Philippian church is early on is the only church who says, hey, let's help this guy a little bit on his journey. And they give him some resources. And then he has no contact with them for about 10 years. This isn't Facebook era time. He's on the road. He's got things to do. You know, sometimes I thank God that Paul got thrown in jail all the time so he had time to write some letters. Because he's moving. He's getting shipwrecked. They're throwing rocks at him. They're beating him up. He's on the, I mean, things are just happening. Philippi is also where he meets, well, the reason he went in jail, this is a fun story. It's the one where he meets the little girl and she's prophesying or telling the future and they're using her like a seer for money. And he's like, ah, oh, this is weird. And he casts the demon out and then they're all mad at him and they throw him in jail. That's all. All that stuff happens in Philippi. Significant place. So some 10 years later, he's in jail now. And he's sitting in this place of no resource. And suddenly a gift shows up. And it's Epaphroditus. And it's his long lost friends from Philippi. It's been 10 years, no contact. And so he writes this response to their gift. I'm sure Epaphroditus gives them kind of the breakdown. Here's what's going on. Here's who's running things at the church. Here's how things are going. 
He writes this incredible letter to them, the book of Philippians. You can read it in one read. If you've never read the book of Philippians, you should read the book of Philippians. It's a one-off, it's four chapters, it's easy, it's encouraging, it's insightful, it's exciting. It gives you the heart of Paul for the people of God. It's all about joy and experiencing the kind of things that can only happen when God transforms your heart and life. It gives you perspective on the world. You can't read Philippians and end in a bad mood. And then you think about what's going on. 10 years, he's had no contact from these folks. And in the course of those 10 years, he's been beaten. Churches have started, they've stopped. Things are going great, then they're going poorly. He's been thrown in prison. Probably this is the second time he's been thrown in prison. He's in a two-year stint in Rome for something he didn't do. He's had to appeal to his rights as a Roman citizen. He's been treated poorly and unfairly. And this gift shows up and he says, I want to write a letter back to you to encourage all of you. Hey, Paul, we're not in prison. Like, no, we're flush. We're doing good. Like the mortgage is paid. We're okay. We're in good shape. We're just writing something to you because we can see that life's got really hard on you. He's like, life's not hard on me. Let me tell you about how life works. And that's the book of Philippians. And chapter after chapter, he unpacks these incredible truths to the people of Philippi. He says things, incredible things. You should read it like in chapter one where he says, I don't care if I die. If I die, that's awesome because I'll be partying in heaven. But if God keeps me down here, then I just get to get, make sure that more of you get an invite to party with me for when I do die. Either way, that's awesome. This is a guy in jail saying, I don't care about death. I'm in a good place. He goes on to say, hey, there's other people out there and they're playing the comparison game saying this guy does better than this guy and you should follow this guy and not me. I don't care about any of that. Everything points back to Jesus. I'm not worried about people playing the comparison game. I'm in good shape. And then in chapter three, he calls out a couple of people who are fighting in church. Now listen, there's a lot of ways to make it in the Bible. What you really don't want to be is the people who made it in the Bible for grumbling in church. Ouch. Chapter three, he calls out some grumblers. How many of you know anywhere there's a church, there's some grumblers? Don't look at anybody. There's always a grumbler. Should have done it this way. Should have done this. Worship was too long. Worship was too short. Worship was too loud. Pastor was too long. Pastor was too short. Pastor was too loud. Go on and on and on. He calls out some grumblers. He's like, hey, tell those grumblers to knock it off. They're all going to heaven, so just stop. Start living like it. And then he gets to chapter four, and he talks about, I'm not anxious about things. I'm not nervous about things. I've learned to present my request to God. And then we get to the text that we're in today about contentment. And what's crazy is the text that we're in today is just like the PS of a letter. It's just the, oh, by the way, of this letter that he writes to this church. And some of the most profound scriptures... Christian bumper stickers, Christian t-shirts are written off the PS of this letter. It's just a, by the way, don't also forget these things. Thanks for the letter. And he writes this thank you card. Now listen, Paul is amazing at a lot of things. Thank you letters. I'm not so sure he's great at this, but he certainly gets the point across. And so let's read this again together. We're going to walk through this a little bit more. And we're going to see some keys of this ability to be content no matter what your circumstance actually is. I'm in Philippians 4 still, chapter 4, verse 10. And he starts off with, uh, let, give me verse 10 again. He says, hey, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Let me just hold on right there for a second. You know, to know one of the keys to being content I don't know what your search circumstance is, but when's the last time that you just rejoiced greatly in the Lord? When's the last time you didn't need someone to walk up on stage and say, all right, guys, it's time to rejoice. But you remembered, oh yeah, I need to just rejoice. When's the last time, Tuesday, three o'clock, you're like, oh, two more hours until I'm off. I got this paperwork. This guy hasn't done their responsibility. The kids are complaining. I don't know what we're doing for dinner. I'm not sure what's happening with the next thing. I don't know if my car's going to run. I got to deal with this thing. I got to take this meeting I don't want to take. And in the middle of all that, Tuesday, 3 o'clock, you're like, oh, yeah. I rejoice 
Paul says, just got done saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He just got done saying that. Why did he say it two times? Because by the time I'm done telling you to rejoice, you already forgot to rejoice. My wife, uh, she's amazing, but she likes to remind me that I repeat myself a lot. And I'm like, well, how many times do I have to say it before you believe it? She's like, don't talk to me like that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I mean, everybody else. <laughs> she's in the nursery right now. She won't listen to this one online, I don't think. <laughs> I'll say it different next service when she's in here. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, yeah. In case you weren't listening to the thing I just said, do that. Again, I say, rejoice. And Paul from prison says, you want to know one of the keys as I say thank you for this gift? I rejoice. I'm a rejoicer. I'm in jail. I'm in prison. I can't work to make ends meet. And you know what I do? I sit around saying, God, thank you for the privilege of serving you, of living for you. Thanks for what you've done for transforming my life. You got to remember, he was a murderous cantankerous person at the beginning of this journey. God has changed his heart. God has changed his life. God has changed his circumstance. And he's about to tell you, sometimes it's awesome, sometimes it's not awesome, but even when it's not awesome, it's awesome. I rejoice. Some of you are in situations that are just not awesome right now. It's time to rejoice. Some of you are in situations that are awesome. You know what you forgot? Rejoice. Why does Jeff have to remind you every time it's to rejoice, be authentic and rejoice. He's faithful to do it. But your job is to rejoice. Your job is to celebrate. Your job is to tell God, thank you. Thanks. When's the last time you just took inventory and were grateful and rejoiced? When's the last time in the middle of your frustration you were like, you know what? Everything's falling apart right now. But praise God I'm in this spot. He's brought me this far. He just rejoices. It's pretty funny. I uh, was looking at different versions of the text here and the word rejoice right there. And the, the, one of the versions says, I'm just very happy in the Lord. Just very happy in the Lord. Did you ever meet someone who's annoyingly happy? Come on, you know somebody. Paul's that dude. He's like, I'm just happy in the Lord. That's the, you know, oh, you threw rocks at me? Sweet, you got a good arm. <laughs> like, that, that was good aim, dude. What? Are you kidding me? I'm just happy in the Lord. One of the problems with our failure to consistently celebrate, especially in our world today, is we're just inundated with good things and we just take them for granted. Anything goes a little bit sideways, we feel ripped off a little bit, we immediately notice. But we have so many good things. Most of you got here in a vehicle that had heat. Like just heat came blowing at you this morning as you were driving over here. You're in a building, there's lights are on. Someone paid for a chair for you to sit in. It's amazing. It's pretty funny. Uh, last year, not this year, last year uh, on my cable package, I called to, to shrink it down because I felt like I was paying too much. And they did that thing where they're like, what can we give you for free? Like, what do you like? I was like, I don't know, sports. They're like, have the red zone, free for a year. It's like, okay. Some of you know what that is, some of you don't. The Red Zone is every Sunday, all the football games are on one channel and they only show you people who are about to score. So you don't have to watch any boring things. Every play is important, right? Every play is I'm about to score. And so I would DVR it because it starts while I'm here working. Come on now, we're doing life together. So I would tell my TV, I'm not ready to watch this awesomeness yet. I'll let you know when I'm ready. I would assume the position, my feet up, and I would hit play on the red zone. And for like 20 minutes, I'd be like, oh, that's awesome. Oh, that was awesome. Oh, that was awesome. Oh, that was awesome. And then about 25 minutes in, I'd be like, that's a lot of awesome. And then pretty soon, about 35 minutes in, I'd be asleep. And the red zone would be watching me. I was inundated with awesome. Now this year, I didn't have that situation. So the Niners would be on, like twice. And there was no awesome happening at all. And I'm glued, waiting for something awesome to happen. And when something awesome happened, I would rejoice. We did something awesome. We didn't turn the ball over. 
We got a punt off. It didn't get blocked. And I would rejoice. What am I trying to tell you? When things aren't awesome all the time and something awesome happens, it's easy to rejoice. But when we're living in a world where things are just awesome, man, I'm so thankful I got all this hot food to eat. So thankful I have a chair underneath me while I'm sitting down to eat this food at a table. I'm not on the floor in the dirt drinking water that I had to drag from a well on my head. Instead, I had to remember to turn the sink off when I was done or crack open the bottled water that I'm drinking. See, things get really awesome and it gets hard to rejoice. Paul's saying, I, I remember to rejoice. I remember. I rejoice in the Lord. Right, we're never going to get done if I go this slow. Let me pick it up. Then, then I love this. Remember, it's a thank you card. I rejoice in the Lord. Listen to what he says. That at last you renewed your concern for me. I don't know if this is good thank you card etiquette. Someone gives you a gift and you're like, thanks so much that you finally gave me a gift. You finally, at last, you renewed your concern for me. At last you were thinking about me. <laughs> I kept, I had the Etta James song at last in my head all day this week. And especially yesterday, I listened to like 30 different versions of it because I just took, I was like, at last, right? That gift has finally come. I'm all excited. And I'm just thinking of Paul sitting there and he's just like, at last, this finally happens. Now listen, he just said, I'm always rejoicing, but at last this thing happened. How do you do when it's moments before you're at last? When you're waiting for something, when you feel like you've been ripped off, when you feel like, hey, you know what? You were, you were in trouble and I sent you a check and now I'm in trouble and it's crickets. I can't even get a Facebook like on my post about being in trouble from you. But when you were in trouble, I showed up. I was there for you. How about this one? You need to help moving and I was there. I was hauling boxes. I was sweating, I ate your pizza. I'm moving, I got all this pizza on my kitchen table, nobody here to eat it. Nobody's helping me. Paul says, man, sometimes you're in a situation where you're in the in-between, waiting. He goes, but I rejoice greatly, even when the at last is about to happen. I'm just as good before as after. Then he does this cool thing. He says, indeed, you have been concerned. You just had no opportunity to show it. How gracious is that? I know you saw me post that. I know you caught wind of the letter that I wrote that toured all around Laodicea and that talked about my situation. I know people got there and told you I was in jail here and I was struggling here and I was pushing the gospel over there. You probably just didn't have any chance at that time to hook a brother up to send some support. I, I could give you that. That's okay. I know that's probably what your heart was. You know what one of the keys to contentment is? You make a decision to believe in the in-between. See, the problem is sometimes in the silence, we come up with a whole narrative. I haven't heard from Pastor Andrew in a while. You know why? He's mad at me, he's selfish, he doesn't care about me, he doesn't think. Like, I, could, I put a whole narrative into his world. You know what the thing is? He's got his own world. He's not thinking about me nearly as much as I'm thinking about me. How dare he, right? No. But that's the problem. We're in this in-between zone and we're in this quiet zone sometimes and we're looking out to the people who we think care about us and we're not seeing the resource come in. And I'm just wondering, do you believe in the best about somebody or the worst? You know, one of the keys to contentment is you make a decision to believe the best about somebody. In the silence, in the quiet moments when you're not sure, you assume the best about somebody. You go, hi, hey, you know what? I'm sure you are concerned for me. You just have the opportunity right now to help. You don't have the opportunity to do that. And I understand that. I've been busy, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes. I get it. We get busy sometimes. Things are rough. How do we handle it? Totally awesome. Verse 11 <laughs> next part of this. So thanks so much for your gift. You finally gave. I know you finally were able to. But by the way, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. So just so you know, I don't really need it. Thanks for your gift. I don't really need it. 
thanks for your gift. That's awesome. It's not that big a deal, though. Listen, I got little kids. One of the most horrifying moments as a parent. You're at a birthday party for your kid, and they're opening gifts, and they rip something open, and they're like, oh, yeah, I got one of these, and they just throw it by. <laughs> I already got one of these. Oh, I don't really like this one. I wanted the other one. And that thing comes out of them that's not appreciative. Come on now. And you're just like, oh, I'm so sorry. And we, you know that the person who gave the gift is totally cool. They're not worried about it. Like, they just think, hey, we just gave him a gift. It's fine. But you feel awful because your kid didn't show the amount of respect and gratitude. We have actually, in the Allison household, I won't say which one of our three kids, middle one, <clears throat> sat down <laughs> with our kids and said, we're going to practice responding to receiving a gift before the party because this is the behavior I want to see out of you no matter what the gift is. You open it up and there's a dirty sock in there. You say, thank you. I always wanted a dirty sock. You put it off to the side and we'll talk about it later. Paul says, I'm not saying this because I needed it. Like, I rejoice in the Lord, and at last you finally did the thing you were supposed to do. Just so you know, I'm all right. I'm all right. Let me ask you this. You've been waiting on something. You've been waiting on the Lord to provide something. Do you have a heart that says, hey, if I get that or I don't get that, I'm all right? It's good if it shows up, but if it doesn't show up, I'll be all right. It's awesome if that ship comes in, but if it doesn't come in, I'm all right. I'm all right. Look at someone and say, I'm all right. You got to practice that a little bit. I don't think you're there. Let's try one more time. Look at someone else. I'm all right. I'm all right. Paul says, I'm all right. I'm all right. It's good that you did it, but I'm all right. Why is he all right? Because he learned something. Now, I love this. This is learned behavior, guys. This isn't natural, instinctive behavior. This isn't emotional responses. This is learned behavior. You have to learn this as a skill. Contentment is not natural. It is not instinctive. It is a learned behavior. So some of you are like, I'm not content. Yeah, you haven't learned the skill. I don't know how to be content. Yeah, you need to learn the skill. My friend Bobby is here from Bible College. So good to see you. You me thinking about basketball analogies, right? If you can't shoot, it's not because there's no ability in you to make a free throw. You have to learn the skill. If your arm bends like this and your wrist works, you can learn the skill. You can learn that behavior. You don't have to settle on the fact that, oh, I'm just a guy who's never gonna be content. Paul says, I learned that behavior. I can start out that way. I didn't naturally go, hey, I'm shipwrecked floating at sea. This is awesome. That wasn't a situation. I didn't look around and say, I'm in jail and I've been wrongly accused and mistreated, beaten, and I haven't got the full benefit of my Roman citizenship. No one should be behaving towards me the way they're behaving. They're taking liberties. They're trying to kill me. They're abusing me. All I'm doing is trying to point them towards truth and love them, and this is my reward my natural response is it, that's awesome. I gotta learn to say that's awesome in that situation. It's gonna take practice. It's gonna be a skill. I'm gonna fail sometimes along the way as I develop a skill. Sometimes I'm gonna do well, sometimes I'm gonna do not so well. Sometimes in the middle of not so well, I'm gonna catch myself and do better. Sometimes in the middle of doing pretty good, I'm gonna catch myself and slip. It's a skill. You gotta develop it. I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I've learned it. How did he learn it? Verse 12, because I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. So I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. You know what he's saying here? We all go through different seasons. Seasons come and go. I've been in seasons where I'm flush, where I'm like, oh, my back is sore. I can't lean on my wallet. It's too heavy, right? Oh, my back. And I've been on seasons where it's like, 
If I just had a scrambled egg that I could throw into this thing atop ramen, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Neither of those seasons lasted. I've been in seasons where it's been like, there's so much tension in my family right now. Every time I talk to so-and-so, it explodes. And I've been in seasons where it's like, man, we just love hanging out, being together, and I'm hearing stories, and it's working out. I've been in seasons where I could run like a six-minute mile over and over again. I've been in this season. Not so much. I've been in seasons, and you've been through seasons. And Paul's saying one of the keys to contentment is recognizing you're in a season right now. The kingdom works on harvest principles. There's sowing, there's reaping. Your life works in harvest principles. Sometimes you're tilling soil. Sometimes you're planting seed. Sometimes you're harvesting and reaping. Sometimes you're eating and and things are, are plenty. And sometimes you're rationing it out to get to the end of the month. Those seasons come and go. While you're here on the earth, you can't expect it to be the same all the time. It doesn't work that way. You're gonna go through seasons. He said, I know what it's like to have plenty. I know what it's like to be in need. I've learned that there's a way to make it no matter what my situation is. My exterior circumstance doesn't affect my joy and contentment. It's not natural. It's a learned behavior. And here's what I learned. Verse 13, Christian t-shirt. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I have access to an exterior power source that is a game changer. And it's Jesus. Some versions say through Christ who gives me strength. That's the hymn we're talking about here in case you're wondering. And I was thinking about this verse. I mean, this is, come on. This is the verse. Christian t-shirt, you're in the gym. You're like, I could do one more rep through him who gives me strength, right? Whatever it is, I can do all this through Christ, through Jesus. And I was thinking about it, I was like, what other thing, if you were to just blank out him or Christ or Jesus, if that word just was blanked out all of a sudden, what other thing could you put in that place and this would still be true? Would money work there? I can do everything through money, which gives me strength. Everything? I can do everything through you know, I, I grew up around addicts. I don't know some people who just believe, man, if I just had my next fix. I could do everything through the drugs, the alcohol, the thing that, that gives me this joy right now, that gives me strength. Is that true? Doesn't ring true. I can do everything through that boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. If they were just perfect like I needed them to be. If I just had them, I could do everything else. That would give me strength. Does that fill the hole? Does that fill the need? It doesn't seem that way. Paul, as he's writing his proverbial thank you letter, has a mic drop moment. Sometimes, you know, you hit the shot, you just leave it up there for a second. He wrote that and he was like, oh, that's going to be helpful for somebody. Maybe it's helpful for you. Maybe you've heard that text before and you thought that meant there's, there's literally, I can, I can just walk off this building and I'll be okay because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And you missed the context of this passage. You saw it on a t-shirt. You saw it on a bumper sticker. You got it on a monogram thing that your grandmother gave you in your house. And it's up on the house. It's next to, as for me and my house will serve the Lord. And right next to it, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And you think that that means that if you just, you know, scream loud enough, that wall will fall down. Maybe. That's not not true, but that's not what he's saying. If you don't read the two verses before this, I've had a lot. I've had nothing. I've been in plenty. I've been in lack. I know the key to experiencing joy in every circumstance. If it's not about that, then you may not understand what this is talking about for you. But Paul's saying the learned behavior is whatever your circumstance is, where do you go for strength? Because if you turn into anything else, contentment will never, will never be enough. That person will never love you enough. It's a good thing you find that person, but they're not gonna complete you to the level where you have everything available to you. You're not gonna be eternally, come on now, Mary folks, you're not eternally content every moment. 
You don't wake up and just look over and go, thank you, Jesus, for this moment as I have no blankets because <laughs> they rolled over and took them all. Thank you, Jesus. for the, like, That's not the moment, right? Come on, you're going to have some moments. But even in those moments, you can learn contentment. Why? Because it comes from an outside source. It's not contingent on your circumstance. Some of you are like, you don't understand how bad my circumstance is. Okay. I got you. There's been some tough ones. I've been in some tough ones. You've been in some tough ones. We've been in some seasons. I was thinking about who had the toughest circumstance historically, biblically. And I was like, how about Job? Job went through a rough stretch. You get to Job chapter two, he's talking to his wife. She's like, curse God and die. And he goes, you know what? I'm not gonna accept good from God and not trouble. I'm not gonna let my exterior circumstances determine how I feel about the creator of the universe and what he's done for me. I'm just saying, I'm not trying to diminish your circumstance, but there's a learned behavior here that Paul says is a secret key to contentment. And you gotta learn the skill you got to recognize where your power and your strength comes from. i never been shipwrecked at sea for a day and a night. Paul says, yeah, I've been okay. i never been bitten by a poisonous snake. I had some rough stretches. No one's ever beat me with a whip and ripped the flesh off of my back. No one ever threw so many rocks at me that they assumed I was dead and then moved on. So that's the guy who wrote this. I'm not in jail. I've been through some tough stuff, but I'm not in prison for something I didn't do. Time number two or time number three. Paul eventually dies because of being imprisoned, the second imprisonment in Rome. They take him out and they kill him. That's the guy who's writing this. I'm just saying. Let me fast forward a little bit here. We're going to run out of time. Moreover, oh, <laughs> verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Finally, the thank you card starts coming together. Good work, Paul. Way to throw this in. Finally, some thank you stuff that makes sense. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, remember he had the dream, he went to Macedonia, he met them. He goes, now one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. Now imagine this, he's traveling from place to place. He's completely dependent on Jesus and the work that's happening there. And he's trying to reach people for the Lord and he's doing everything he can. And he's looking around, he's like, nobody's helping me. I guess I'll make these tents so I'm not a burden to anybody. So no one has an accusation. And only this church in Philippi, Lydia and her buddies, hook him up. Except you only. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. <laughs> what a picture. He's like, I just want you to know, I remember early on you got a hold of this idea that we're partners in this. And I didn't just come and deposit something and then you just wait for the next deposit and you just wait for the next deposit and then you just wait for the next deposit and you're like, oh, I'm all out. I'm ready for another deposit. He says, no, 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 we're partners in this. We're partners. You got the same access to the power of God that I got and you got a different skill set and a different tools and different resources. So bring your resources. Come on, that's how the church works. You bring your skill set, you bring your skill set, you bring your resources, I'll bring my resources and we'll see people's lives transformed by the power and authority of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. We'll see communities change. Why? Because we all are in this together. He goes, you guys got that from the beginning. So I recognize that. You were the ones that caught a hold of that's how this whole thing is supposed to work. You remembered to be partners and co-workers. Verse 17, don't read me wrong. I'm not looking for a gift. I added the read me wrong. I'm not looking for a gift because I'm not looking. Don't, you don't have to send me something else, right? This isn't me manipulating you saying, hey, thanks for the gift. Remember you gave me gifts over and over again before? He's like, he's not pulling one of those. Some of you are already skeptical. Like, this pastor sounds like he's talking a lot about money today. It seems a little bit, it's one of those churches where they talk about money. You know, we just talk about the Bible, how the kingdom of God works. And he goes, hey, this isn't fishing for another gift. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm actually looking for is what may be credited to your account. What's he saying? He's saying, I understand that there is reciprocity going on in the heavenly realms, that the biblical principle, the biblical principle of sowing and reaping is happening in your life. And I want to make sure you know that as your pastor, I care about the 
credit that's getting racked up in your account because of your heart to serve and your heart to give and because of the willingness to sacrifice and that that's awesome. It's funny how the kingdom of God's economy works. It just works different than we think it's going to work. I was actually in a conversation with somebody this weekend, and they brought up something that was really, I hadn't even thought about yet. They said, I wonder with the new tax code and less people itemizing, if people will be less generous to the church. Okay, I hadn't even thought about that world before. My paradigm hadn't even gone there yet, that the idea of, oh man, it's less personally beneficial to me to give than it was a year ago, so I might not give at the same level because my tax write-off chain, come on, somebody. I'm just, I'm just talking real talk. And Paul's saying, that's not how the kingdom works at all. <laughs> that's not at all. You totally missed it. You want to have benefit, and you want to experience the blessing and provision of God, just give yourself away whatever God puts in your heart to do. Just do that. I'm not looking for anything extra. As a matter of fact, verse 18, he says, I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied. Now that I've received Epaphroditus and the gifts that you sent, they're a fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. He's like, I got it. I got the gift pack. I'm cool. This was amazing. This will sustain me. You have no idea. And then the other amazing verse that's here in this PS postscript, he goes, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. This is the crescendo of the whole thing. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Paul teaches us it's not about wanting more all the time. It's about trusting God in every season and giving yourself away, trusting that God will return that blessing and provision to you in ways you've never even expected, greater and more. Here's the problem. We always want more. And we're not concerned about the resulting conflict that it creates. So I'm gonna give you just a couple quick things and we're almost done. We're gonna take communion. We're gonna get out of here. A couple quick tools. If you're taking notes, you can take notes. If you wanna just take pictures of the screen, I'll move quickly through this. Here's some dangers, some effects of being in a situation where you're always wanting more. I always want more. I just need some more. I just need some more. I just need some more. You know what you're gonna have more of? You're gonna have more conflict. You're gonna have more conflict. Proverbs 15, 27, a greedy man brings trouble to his family, but he who hates bribes will live. Solomon says, hey, you have someone in the household and everything is about, I need some more, I need some more, I need some more. You know what you're gonna have? Fights. You're gonna have fights, arguments, tension, conflict. If you don't learn this skill, you're gonna find yourself in a situation surrounded by conflict. You're surrounded by conflict all the time. Someone in your circle is greedy. Just saying, better look in the mirror first. You're gonna have more debt. You're gonna have more debt. Paul tells Timothy, people who wanna get rich, they fall into temptation, they fall into a trap, and to many and foolish, harmful desires, and they plunge men into ruin and destruction. He says, if you're always in a more situation, you're gonna trade future security for immediate pleasure. It's a trap. You're gonna have more debt. It's gonna get increased. It's gonna be larger. I thought about looking up stats on consumer debt, but I didn't wanna be depressed. And I was depressed enough writing this message. <laughs> I wanted to be content. I wanna learn that skill. You're gonna have more debt. Last one, you're gonna have more anxiety. You're always wanting more. You're gonna have more conflict. You're gonna have more debt. You're gonna have more anxiety. I love this passage from Ecclesiastes. The sleep of a laborer is sweet whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. You're gonna amass more stuff. You're gonna be worried all the time. If everything is about getting that next thing, you're gonna be stressed out. You wanna meet someone really stressed? Meet someone who has a brand new beautiful car and parks it at a grocery store. <laughs> they're like walking away from that thing looking back. They get all the way to the front and then you're watching someone with their cart being like, oh, you better not be parked next to me. Don't park that car, right? You want an abundance of stress? Have a bunch of new things. I mean, are you saying you should have no new things? No, I'm just saying that Solomon, who had everything, recognized that you're gonna have sleepless nights if you're concerned only about the abundance of your possessions. You're gonna be stressed out all the time. He says the guy who just works and eats, 
and then goes on to the next day, that guy sleeps like a baby. I haven't met that guy yet, but Solomon says that guy's out there. But you're stressed out about abundance, it will come back after you. Contentment, guys, is a learned behavior. It's a learned behavior. You want to experience it, you got to stop comparing yourself to others. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians, we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with someone who's commend themselves. Someone's like, hey, my life's awesome. You don't have to go, well, my life's not awesome. Stop scrolling through your Instagram, Facebook feed going, oh, wish I had that. Stop playing that game. Hebrews says, uh, the author of Hebrews says, just keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. With that promise in your pocket, Keep your life free from chasing after things. David said, the Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. Not, I shall not want. He didn't just say, I shall not want. He said, the Lord is my shepherd, my trust, my provider. So I shall not want. Last is this. I'll call the guys forward, the people forward. We're going to take communion here. Paul tells Timothy that contentment, it's not the fulfillment of everything you want. It's the realization of what you already have. It's not the fulfillment of everything you want. It's the realization of what you already have. He tells Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain because we brought nothing into this world. We'll take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. We all face trials and tribulations, but no matter what the situation, our contentment comes from God and from knowing God. So how do we do this? We stay calibrated and remember who Jesus is and what he did. And so that's how we're gonna close the service today. These guys are gonna pass around communion elements and you're gonna get a juice and a bread and just take those and hold on to it. Now listen, if you're new here and you're visiting with us, communion is something we do to just remember who Jesus is and what he did. You don't have to be a member to take it. All you have to do is want to, with us, celebrate the fact that Jesus came for each and every one of us. And if that's you, then you can take it. If not, you can just let it pass you by. And when you have it, I'm gonna invite you to stand with me so I know you have it. And we're just gonna remember for a few minutes who Jesus is. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he took juice and he said, this is my body, which is for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So what are we remembering? Earlier in his letter to the Philippians, Paul says this about Jesus in Philippians chapter two. He says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. He's telling us what to remember. Your attitude, your heart needs to be like Jesus's heart, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He just made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found again in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because of that, Paul says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Paul says, listen, I want you to remember that Jesus who had everything was content to step away from all of that and give his strength away to all of us so that we could find ourselves in the situation that we now find ourselves in. And for some of you, we've been talking about contentment And you've been wincing the whole time thinking, well, that ain't me. And it's because you haven't been able to rejoice because you haven't spent too much time remembering what we're gonna remember right now. That God loved you so stinking much. He saw your plight, your situation. He looked through history and time and said, for you, I'll send my son. To pay the price for all of your mistakes, that you can find yourself in a situation where you have complete and total access to me, to my heart, and to forgiveness. And that's what he did for you. And, for me. and because of that, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me.
So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and we're going to take this. We're going to sing this chorus one time, and then we're going to get out of here because I know it's late, and I love you guys, and you've been listening for a long time. But take that bread and take that juice. I'm going to pray. Jesus, we recognize what you've done for us. And thank you for your word, which gives us this incredible example of how to manage even in tough circumstances. And I know I've glossed over the fact that some of us are in incredibly difficult circumstances right now today. And being content in this season seems like an impossible situation, except that we recognize the source of our contentment is understanding who you are and what you've done. And God, for some of us, we've drifted away from remembering that. We've been living like our own hands as the access for all of our provision. We've been living like somebody else has ripped us off and that's why we're in this situation. And we've been shortchanged sometimes and not living like we are amply supplied whether the gift comes or not because of what you've done. Because you are great and you do love us. We say thanks and we remember in Jesus' name. Amen.